This week we're going to finish up chapter 1 going from verse 6 through verse 14. Uh, You'll notice if you happen to look at your bulletin, uh, there is not an outline on the back side of your bulletin. There is just a title and a passage and a big old blank sheet. And for those of you that really need that structure, um, I I totally thought of you when I was doing the outline. (laughs) And I figured that you would get over it. So... Now, there are some passages where an outline really helps to guide you through the passage and methodically walk you through the passage. There are some passages that, that trying to force an outline into it can actually keep you from really being able to grasp what's going on. Uh, and this morning is one of those passages. So uh, the, the sheet of paper is there for those of you who like taking notes. Go right ahead. Uh, If you feel, as we walk through the passage this morning, if you feel God really pressing in on your heart about something, uh, the space is there for you to write it down uh, so that you can meditate on it, come back to it, things like that. Um, Also, part of preaching is being faithful to the text. That is a crucial aspect of proclaiming the Word of God. Not using the text to... Uh, make it say what we want it to say, but instead letting the text speak to us about what God wants to say. Uh, But part of that is also letting the tone of the text come through as well. Uh, And so just know that uh, this morning's tone of the message is such because it's the tone of the passage. Uh, And for us to for either myself or Pastor Mike or any of the elders or anyone who preaches to, to soften a message so that it's more palatable, easier to take, would be to do all of you a disservice and to do God's word a disservice. So uh, please just keep that in mind this morning. Uh, but last week we talked about verses uh, 1 through 5 in chapter 1 where God professes to the people of Israel, I have loved you. And, and the, the tense that God uses there is one that is, it means it's, it's past tense in the sense that it's something that has occurred in the past, but it carries future implications, meaning God has loved us, God does love us, God will love us. And when you put that in the context of the people that he's talking to, the Israelites, and you look at what has taken place from when he made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis, all the way up to when he speaks to the, through the prophet Malachi. There's a lot of ridiculous stuff that happened in between those two points in history. And so the fact that when you step back and look at that context, the fact that God would say to those people, I have loved you, is by itself an incredible testament to the faithfulness of God toward sinful people. Uh, So this week, we're going to take off from where the Israelites kind of set us up last week where they questioned God. How have you loved us? Prove to us how you've loved us. And that attitude that they reveal is what's going to lead us into the passage this morning. Uh, But let me go ahead and pray for our time, and then we'll go through the passage. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that your word is truth and that you speak the words that your people need to hear. And, and God, we recognize that this morning in this passage are words that are hard to take and are hard to hear. But I pray that you would soften our hearts. Help our, help our, our minds to be uh, open to whatever you would say to us, to be sensitive to your spirit. And I just pray that uh, we would leave this place changed. Lord, and I also pray for Pastor Ryan Kelly at Desert Springs Bible Church that you would also speak through him, that you would soften the hearts of the people of Desert Springs Bible Church, that they would leave this morning changed and ready to follow you more, ready to obey you more, that no matter what church your word is being proclaimed in, that those who hear your word proclaimed would change, would turn, would repent, and would seek to obey you and honor you with their lives. So God, we are here uh, to hear what you would say to us uh, and to follow your commands, God. Amen. All right, so chapter 1, verses 16, or verses 6 through 14. We'll go ahead and read through all of it, and then we'll walk through it together. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So this is what God says through the prophet Malachi as he follows up on the people questioning his love for them. They questioned his love, Verses 1 through 5. And he answered them to tell them why he, or how they could know that he loved them. 
And then this is what follows. And what we see going on with the, with the people here is contempt toward God. Okay? Contempt toward God. Contempt isn't necessarily animosity. Contempt is, is, in its most basic meaning, viewing something as unimportant. To show contempt towards something is to view that thing as unimportant. And that's what the priests are doing in this passage. That's what God's calling them out for. Now, what you have to understand about this passage is God is speaking directly to the priests about how they are engaging his temple service, how they are engaging his commands. But by way of implication, these words also ring out to all the people of Israel because the priests are the religious leaders of Israel and how as they go, so go the people. As they lead the people of Israel through worship and sacrifice and offerings, the people will do the same thing. And so the implications of what God is saying to the priests go all the way out to all the people. Now, the question though is, why is it, or how is it, that the very people of God the men who served in the temple service for God would show contempt toward God himself. What, what would lead them to that point? And God points out a few things here in verse 6. So take a look at verse 6. He said, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? First thing that's going on here is there is a lack of of honor for God among these people. There's a lack of honor for God. God sets up two universally accepted truths. A son will honor his father and a servant will honor his master. Sure, there might be exceptions to that, but children will honor their parents, or at least should honor their parents, and a servant will honor his or her master. So God is saying... if, if a son will honor his earthly father, and I am your father, where is my honor? And the, the Hebrew in that phrase is, where is the honor that is owed to me? Not, not just like, where, where is this honor that I should be getting, but I don't know where it is. It's, you owe this to me, and you are not giving it to me. And the, the root word for that word honor is the same root as for the word Glory. And glory, God's glory is essentially his, his weight. The weight that is associated with his authority, his character, his position. Okay. The, the glory of God is what impresses on us, what makes us aware of who God really is. And God's telling these people, I am not receiving any honor from you. You are not recognizing my glory. The very ones who are doing the service in the temple, which was the very location of the presence of God. And they had forgotten about his glory. And ways that we do this today are much the same that they were doing in this time as well. We forget God's glory in the church. Just as they were forgetting about God's glory in the temple, we do the same thing. Where when we come to church, we don't prepare our hearts to be engaged and, and anticipating the presence of God being in this place. Instead, we come here like it's just another thing to do on Sunday. When we come to worship, 
We don't prepare our hearts to worship God, but instead lackadaisically sing songs. We have a lack of reverence in how we speak about God. We throw God's name around like it's just any other name. We use it as an exclamation half the time. Where we would, we would see more of God's glory if we would speak of him in a way that communicated that he was glorious and that he deserved honor. But unfortunately, so often we are so callous and so casual in how we refer to God we will never see the glory of God if we refer to God as though he's just anybody else. Another way is replacing God with something else. Replacing God with something else. I put something else in God's place as the ultimate source and placement of my affection and adoration and instead bring God and the things of God to a lower place in my life. Whether it be a hobby or a job, I'm wanting a promotion or a raise or a relationship or a child or an achievement, whatever it is, when I place that above God in my life in a word, committing idolatry, a lack of honor for God. Second thing that God tells the priests is that there is a lack of fear. He says, if I am a master... Where is my fear? Now, fear of God is something that, for some reason, we look at it as a negative thing, uh, especially in, in the American church. We, we hear fear of God, we should fear God, and we instantly say, oh no, we shouldn't fear God, God's loving. He's, he's our Father. Why would we fear Him? It must, be a, it must be a bad thing to fear God, right? Well, no, because... The psalmist and in Proverbs, they both say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there is a place for fear in the life of the believer. And so often, people when they come to the fear of God in the Bible... Places where it talks about the people fearing God or commands to fear God or just any mention of fearing God and they say, well, let's stop here. Now, this isn't fear. It's respect. Now, when the Israelites were so terrified of God that they pleaded with Moses to not have God speak directly to them or they would die, that doesn't sound like respect. That sounds like pure fear. When Ezekiel caught a vision of God, he fell over because he couldn't handle it. It sounds like fear. When Isaiah stood before the throne of the glorified Christ in Isaiah 6, he thought he was going to die. That's fear. John, the apostle who was with Jesus day in and day out for years, when he saw Jesus glorified, fell over as though dead. We read in Revelation. That's fear. It's not respect. Respect is a piece of it. Yes, we absolutely should respect God. But there is an element where we fear God and say, I don't want to disobey God because he commanded me not to do this. And I have a healthy fear of my God and the consequences for my actions. All right, now we, if you have put your faith in Jesus, we as believers do not have to fear the wrath of God 
because wrath for sin will not be poured out on us. But we absolutely should fear God. The fear of God is a good thing. But we also, in the church today, have a lack of fear toward God. And this comes out in a low view of sin. When we view sin as something small, oh, it's okay, God will forgive you. I know you shouldn't have done it, but it's okay. People struggle with it all the time, so it's just something you're going to have to live with. When we do that with sin, the very thing that put Jesus on the cross and we make it out like it's some trite little thing that doesn't matter, we show a lack of fear for God. A A willingness to discard God's commands is another way. When I am willing to say, yes, God commanded that, but I'm the exception. Yes, God said that that is wrong, but here's why it's okay for me. Yes, God said that that's wrong, but that doesn't apply anymore. When I start justifying reasons and ways that I don't have to abide by the commands of God, I display a lack of fear for God. And when we accept the sins of others as being acceptable now, we show a lack of fear for God. When I am willing to say, out of love for you, I'm not going to point out your sin. Out of love for you, I'm going to accept you and just say that what you're doing is okay, even though God's word says it's an abomination. Yes, we should absolutely love others, but we should not love sin. And when we love sin, we show a lack of fear for God. And what this leads to is it leads to us despising God. It says in the end of verse 6, it says, Where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name? That word despise, the, the Hebrew word there, means, it literally means to hold something as cheap. It's to cheapen the name of God. To have a lack of of honor for God and a lack of fear for God is to say, God, your name is cheap. How, how wrong is that? But when we refuse to give God the right honor that is due to him and have a right fear for him, we communicate to him that we view him as cheap and we despise him. So then the priests question God again, which I would have, you would, you'd think that they would have learned their lesson in the first part, but they question God again, where they say, how have we despised your name by offering polluted food upon my altar? But you say, how have we polluted you by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Now, something just happened in that verse that it's easy to miss, but it's incredibly significant. God, God told them that they were despising his name. The people said, how have we despised your name? Okay, we're tracking. He answered them, by offering polluted food upon my altar. Now, did the priest say, how have we polluted your altar? What did they say? How have we what? Polluted you. He said, you have, pol- you have offered polluted food on my altar and the priests respond by saying, how have we polluted you? See, what just happened there, 
the priests just acknowledged on their own that to pollute the things of God, to despise the things of God, to bring low the things of God, is to do that very thing to God himself. That when I treat something as unimportant, when I cheapen something that God has told me is valuable, when I bring something of God down to a lower level in my life, I am doing that to God in my own life. And that's what the priest just revealed, that they were even aware that they were doing that. And two other things to notice here. First of all, it's, it's possible that the priests didn't actually say this, um, but instead communicated it through their attitudes and actions. Because I feel like if you, if you respond to God by saying, oh yeah, you can despise his name. You, you can despise God's altar. Right? You're just asking to get struck down. But the way that they were acting definitely communicated to the people, it's okay to despise the things of God. And that's what God's really getting at here. And when we will bring low the things of God in our life, when we will act like the commands of God are trivial and aren't that important and it's easy to discard, when we will see the things that God commands us to do and respond by saying, well, here's why I'm the exception to that. Our actions and our attitudes communicate to those around us that it's acceptable to do the same thing. But then also, this phrase in verse 7, the Lord's table, where he says at the very end of verse 7, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. This is the only place in the entire Bible that that phrase shows up, that Hebrew phrase. And the reason is the Hebrew word for table right there is the most generic, ordinary, basic word for a table that exists in the Hebrew language. So to combine that with the name of God is borderline blasphemy. And yet God is revealing to these priests, you're treating my table like it's your coffee table that you kick your feet up on. You're treating my altar like it's no different than any other table in your house. You are taking something of God's and making it something so ordinary, so basic, that you have no reverence for it whatsoever. And we see next in verse 8 how this really starts playing out in terms of the lives of the priests. He says, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. So he's like, you're bringing me an offering that a, hu a sinful human being wouldn't even accept. And you think that the God of the universe is going to be okay with that? That's crazy. But he references, he's referencing Deuteronomy chapter 15. I'll just read it for you so you don't have to worry about going over there. But in Deuteronomy 15, Moses is recounting to the people of Israel the commands of God as it pertains to offerings, sacrifices, things like that. He says in verse 19, All the firstborn males that are born of your herd and flock you shall dedica dedicate to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, 
nor shear the firstborn of your flock. And then down in verse 21, he goes on and says, but if it has any blemish, if it is lame or blind or has any serious blemish, blemish whatever, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. So, God, God commanded the Israelites. Now Moses is reminding the Israelites, the firstborn of your flock is God's. It's God's. No one else's. It's not yours. It's not your buddy's. It's no one else's. It's God's. You are to set that animal aside and do nothing with it except get it ready to sacrifice it to the Lord unless there's something wrong with it. If it's lame, if it's blind, if it's sick, if there's some abnormality with it, then you don't sacrifice it to God because it's no longer pure. That was the command, and it's as blatant as the day is long. And what you also have to understand about this moment here in Malachi is Ezra had just recently read the entire law to all the people. So the law was very fresh in their mind, and they should have been very familiar with what was going on here. But you see, what the priests were doing is they were actually bringing those blemished, lame, sick, blind, impure animals and offering them, on the or offering them as a sacrifice on the altar. So essentially, if you can kind of picture this, essentially the priest is sitting there saying, well, I'm a priest, so I should probably make a sacrifice. No, no, don't get the firstborn. He's too valuable. He's a good animal. He's pure. He's strong. He's the firstborn. Don't get him. I have other purposes for him. Don't use that one. Get the sick one that's of no use to me. This one that is of no value and I have no purpose for, get that one and sacrifice that to God. And that's why God says, is that not evil? To take the very thing that you were commanded is God's and set it aside to say, no, I have a different purpose for that, God. I'll give you something of less value. I'll give you something that isn't as important to me. Is that not evil? And before we think that this is lost on us because we don't, most of us don't have livestock anymore, do you tithe? Do you give of your tithes and offerings to the church? Now, some of you may have just said, well, that didn't take long. Pastor's talking about money. <laughs> if, that's, if that's the attitude, you need to deal with that attitude first. But second of all, this serves me no benefit to talk to you about this. This is for all of us in terms of our obedience to God. I get nothing out of you putting money in the offering. Okay? I'm not looking for a raise. I'm not looking for more money for the staff. Nothing. I'm looking for your obedience to the commands of God. Okay? But do you give of your tithes and your offerings to the church? Because God commanded that we tithe from our first fruits. And our wealth is not measured in livestock, it's measured in money. And so our increase is our paycheck. And our paycheck is not all ours. 10% right? of the money that we have is God's. It is, and it is to go back to him. He's the one who provided the money for us in the first place. So how crazy is it for me to say, no, God, you can't have any back. And if God commanded us to give of our tithes and offerings, 
And yet, I set aside that money and say, no, God, I have other plans for it. Is that not evil? Is that not evil? Now, I've heard a lot of reasons for why people don't tithe. We do not have time to get into the gamut of reasons why people don't. But there's one that seems to be really common, and it was the one that I gave for not tithing for the longest time when I was younger. And it's, well, I can't afford it. I can't afford to tithe. And I'll tell you what one of my professors told me uh, in one of my classes when I first started at seminary. Well, he was talking to the whole class. Because we were talking about tithing, and he said, tithing's a lot like having a kid. He said, if you wait to have a child until you can afford it, you will never have a child because you can never afford it. And anyone who's had kids knows you, you can't afford kids. You, you, you make sacrifices because they're expensive. <laughs> but they're totally worth it. Right? But with tithing, he said, if you say that you're not, you're, you'll tithe when you can afford it, you will never tithe because you will always find something else to spend the money on because you're doing everything backwards. Because if God asks for my first fruits, if God commands for me to give to him of my first fruits, and I can't afford to tithe, that means I'm actually trying to give God my last fruits, whatever's left over at the end, after I've paid my bills and gone shopping and went out to eat and all this stuff. If something's left over, I'll give it to God. And lo and behold, there seldom is. If God wants my first fruits, then before I ever pay a bill, before I ever figure out where any of that money's going, I take 10% of it and push it aside and say, that's God's and I'm not touching it. I'm giving it to the church. I'm giving it to God. So if you, if you don't tithe, you need to start. Okay? But there are other ways that we bring lame, sick offerings before God. When we come in for worship, and I don't prepare my heart, and I walk, go through the songs, maybe clapping my hands if I can keep the rhythm, but my heart is not engaged. God is not impressed. I am not bringing a good offering before the Lord. I'm bringing a sick, lame offering. When we have the communion table set out, and yet I, and I'll come to the communion table, take the, the, the juice and the bread, and I will not prepare my heart, and I will not focus on reconciliation, and I will take that bread and that cup without it giving a thought to my sin and the penalty that Christ paid for me. That's a sick offering. That's a lame offering. And I'll come to God in prayer, but I'm making no attempt at reconciliation in my life. I am making no attempt at repentance. That's a sick offering. When our heart is in the wrong place, when we are acting out of duty and obligation and disinterested engagement, it's a sick offering. But when we act from the heart, when we say, God, I want to honor you. I bring you this offering because I love you. Please show me how I can obey you and honor you. That is an offering that God is glad to receive because it's good and it's right. But to withhold from God, from God that which is his 
and to give God that which is just left over in my heart or left over in my things is evil. It's evil. God goes on in verse 9. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. He's saying, you you think you're going to earn my favor by just doing these things out of obligation and your heart's not in it? That's not where my favor lies. He's not impressed with the things I do because I'm obligated to do them. The things I do disinterested and, uh, and apprehensively. He's honored by the things that we do because we want to, because we love him, because we want to obey him. Verse 10, he says, Oh, that there were one among you that would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. See, there comes a point where when as a group, as a body, when people refuse to give God honor, refuse to recognize his glory, refuse to respond to him in fear, take from him what is rightfully his, refuse to give to him what he's commanded that we give, where God says, enough. Enough. Shut the doors. I'm tired of it. And there are churches in this country, in this world, that have discarded the honor that God deserves, discarded the fear of God. They have called evil good and good evil and have drugged the name of God through the mud and it has been no one other than Jesus who has closed their doors. And we are at just as much a risk of him closing our doors as well if we walk down that road. To think, oh, that would never happen to our church is foolish because as soon as we start Refusing to give God the honor he deserves as soon as we lose our fear of him, as soon as we stop obeying him because we love him, and instead just do things out of duty, somehow thinking that he's honored by that, all the while doing the very thing that he despises, he'll shut our doors too. So he says in verse 11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God's name will be made great. He will not be mocked. He will not be fooled. His name will be great. And he's telling these priests, if you won't do it, I will find someone else who will. Just like Jesus told the Pharisees, if you remember in the triumphal entry when Jesus is coming in and the disciples are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the Pharisees tell Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet. And he says, I tell you, if they didn't cry out, the very rocks would cry out. If you, he's saying, if you won't make my name great in your actions, if you won't make my name great in the way that you're living and in the way that you're obeying me, I will find someone else who will but God's name will be made great. And we can either choose to be a part of that or be against it. But there's no indifferent middle ground. Verse 12, But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, What a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. 
it's, it's tragic when I hear people talk about how inconvenient it is to do ministry. Oh, we're having a night of prayer and worship on a Sunday evening. Right? There's football on or whatever else you're wanting to do that night. Oh, the communion tables are out this morning. We're probably going to go over. The pastor's going over this morning. I'm hungry. Can we please wrap this up? No, I'm sorry. I can't do that in the middle of the week. I'm too busy. Right? Ways that we say what a weariness it is to be in the house of God. Why are we doing a second song at the end of the worship set? Can't we just be done? Right? I don't like that song. There's too much drums in it. Right? I mean, we can, we, it, it's kind of humorous, but at the same time, it's also true. Where we complain and complain and complain about what should be a privilege and an honor to be a part of the work and the worship of God's kingdom. And yet we snort at it just like these people did. May it not be so anymore. But that we would take delight in the work of the ministry of God. And in the praise of his name for the glory of his name. God finishes by saying, You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. He repeats what he said earlier, and he emphasizes what he said earlier. When we take from God what is rightfully his, when we refuse to give him what he is owed, when we, when we lazily and disinterested do things out, out of religious obligation, but our heart is not in it, God says, you're cheating me. You're cheating me out of what you owe me. And it's easy to, to, to look at that and say, well... Fine, I'll do it. And be just as disinterested and just as angry about having to do it. Right? That, that totally misses the point. What, what is it that God really wants? What is it that should drive our hearts to the place where we gladly do what God's word says? It's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, we can gladly say, absolutely, God, I'll do that. Because you gave me something I could never earn. You gave me something I could never attain. You did for me what I could never do for myself. So why on earth would I complain about doing something for you when you gave me the very thing that I could not get for myself? Turn over to the book of Micah, chapter 6. It's about 20 or 30 pages to the left. It's right after Jonah, right before Nahum. 
If you're not super familiar with the Old Testament, sometimes you can really get lost in the shorter books toward the end. Micah chapter 6. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord? Verse 6, And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? See, God is not impressed by the religious duties that we carry out. I could, I could spend every waking second in this church. I could give every single dollar I've ever, ever received to God. But if my heart isn't there, it's all pointless. It's all pointless. But because of what Jesus did by dying on the cross for our sins, raising from the dead, conquering death, so that we could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life, is that we are now set free to obey God. I've said it, I've said it before. I've heard it said a few times. Being free is not getting to do whatever you want. Okay? Because what we want in our natural state is sin. That's the opposite of freedom. That's bondage. Being free is not getting to do whatever you want. Being free is being freed to do what you were made to do. And that is honor and obey God. And so because of the cross, I am free to say, yes, God, I will give of my tithes and my offerings. Yes, God, I will obey the commands of your word. Yes, God, I will walk away from the things in my life that do not bring honor to you because honoring you is more important than those things. Because of what you have done, I will follow you. Because of who you are, I will fear you. Because of how great you are, I will give you glory. I want to do these things for you. That is where the cross should lead us. To a place of obedience. So if there is a place where you this morning recognize, I have not given honor to God. I have not feared God in that place in my life. I have done my own thing. I have followed my own path. I have withheld from God what is rightfully his. If you, if you can say that about an aspect of your life, then as we finish in worship, press into that. Ask God to show you how you can honor him, how you can be sure to fear him and give him glory and obey him, and then do it. With, by the Holy Spirit living inside of you because of what Jesus did, do it. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never put your faith in him, what you have to understand is there is not a single thing that you can do to make God love you more. There is not a single thing you can do right now to bring God's favor on you and somehow outweigh your sin. It's an issue that we all have. 
And the only way to be forgiven, the only way is by putting your faith in Jesus. That's the only way you can ever hope to honor God. But when you do put your faith in Jesus, you are freed to honor God. Let's pray.